Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Erika Engelhaupt, the author of Gory Details, Adventures from the Dark Side of Science. Would your dog eat you if you died? What are face mites? Why do clowns creep us out? In this illuminating collection of grisly true science stories, journalist Erica Engelhaupt, the writer of the National Geographic's highly acclaimed Gory Details blog, shares the answers to these questions and many more. Gory Details, Adventures from the Dark Side of Science, explores the strange and shocking realities of our minds, our bodies, and our universe, taking readers on a fascinating tour through overlooked but astonishing aspects of biology, anatomy, nature, and more, as well as the ways that science uh, helps to break down taboos surrounding such conversations, uh, sorry, conversation topics as women's bodies, blending humor and real science. Engelhout share, uh, shares captivating stories and intriguing research that will alter the way readers view the world. From a peek inside the world's smallest crime scenes to a hands-on look at maggot farming, Gory Details features top-notch reporting, interviews with leading scientists, and a healthy dose of wit. Okay, so it's my pleasure to welcome Erica here today. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. Thank you very much for coming so I would like to start by asking, how has the pandemic influenced you and your work? Yes, well, um, yeah, it's definitely affected uh, my work like most people. I was actually in London doing reporting for a story that I was working on for National Geographic when the travel was shut down between Europe and the U.S. So that was a really kind of crazy, surreal experience being there um, when all of a sudden the pandemic went from something that we were kind of keeping an eye on to suddenly a very, very big deal. And I was, you know, very nervous about whether I would be able to get home uh, from the UK. Of course, everything worked out. I was able to get home and, um, and didn't get COVID. (laughs) So, um, so I was very fortunate. Um, it did throw off the story that I was working on, which has had to be delayed because we can't finish the reporting and photography for it. And it pushed back the publication of my book, Gory Details, by almost a year. Um, so those were the things that were the hardest for me, were just professionally having everything be put on hold. And so... Um, but overall, I've been very lucky. I was already a freelancer, so I was used to working from home. And um, and my parents just got their vaccine shots. Uh, so I'm very happy about that and feeling very relieved um, that maybe in the U.S. here we are going to start uh, coming down on cases and, and the things might be looking up. Excellent. So apart from that stranded experience right in the beginning, did you feel uh, a lot of change uh, within your general uh, sort of work routine and plans for the projects? Yeah, what what I ended up doing was basically having to, you know, switch everything around in my professional life around COVID because we, uh, as science writers, all of a sudden, this is the story of the century. And so everything else pretty much got put on hold. And I've been focusing on uh, working for Science News Magazine, where I had worked previously, doing a lot of editing work for them. And so I've been involved in a lot of the coverage of COVID-19 and editing a lot of stories about that, as well as about all kinds of other areas of science. Um, but that has that has helped. Um, it, it feels good as a science writer to be able to contribute in some way to, um, you know, stories about the pandemic and uh, better, you know, public education on science and spreading the word about um, about the science of of the 
um, of the virus. Yes, for sure. And we're really lucky to have you as a first line media responder who can uh, write uh, good stories, so not hyped stories about, uh, about this subject to educate people. Yeah, and I, I think that science writers have done a really good job overall. I think it's been very, very challenging. So many reporters I know are just exhausted and burnt out. And it's very hard fighting all of the misinformation now about vaccination um, and the vaccines. It's, you know, it's it's definitely an uphill battle trying to uh, make sure make sure that people get the, the right information um, because there's just a constant flood of misinformation. Mm. So how do you catch your breath? It must be really tiring. <laughs> it is, but you know, I'm very lucky. I live in uh, beautiful Knoxville, Tennessee, and so I'm surrounded by lakes and rivers and mountains and the outdoors. And so when I need a break from it all, I can go outside, go for a long walk, go for a hike. Uh, that was actually one of the hard things for me in the beginning of the pandemic was I remember going out with my husband and wanting to go for a little hike. And the trails and paths were all just full of people not wearing masks. This was very early in the pandemic. And I got so frustrated. I remember crying because I thought, you know, <laughs> I can't go anywhere, but I want to go outside. And it, it was very frustrating that, you know, people were making it so that it didn't even feel safe to be outside walking on a trail. And we've, we're doing a lot better now, I think, um, People in my area are wearing masks now, and I do feel much safer going for for a hike these days. But um, that's been really one of my big releases is to be able to get outside. Oh yeah, I understand fully. I always go to uh, for hikes uh, in Alps in Switzerland, but uh, and uh, uh, I uh, we've also experienced something that you describe. But also we could see that many more people started coming out. So once something is it's uh, being prohibited. People tend to do this, don't they? Absolutely. I mean, I don't think I had ever seen so many people out on the trails <laughs> as I did early in the pandemic. And I think people felt very cooped up. They felt they didn't want to be in the house. Um, there was, you know, everything else was closed. So there was a lot of demand to get outdoors. And I appreciated that very much. I was glad for people to get outdoors. Um but I wanted them to do so safely. <laughs> and I think that people now are, um, are doing a lot better on that. And, and I, I hope people will continue to turn to the outdoors uh, to get them in a you know, good state of mind. And uh, as we continue to, to you know, move on through the pandemic. Yeah, that's a great advice. Get outdoors. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so can you tell me a bit more about yourself? So your background... Sure. So I, I grew up loving science and nature and animals, the outdoors. Um, I had a, a little bit of an unusual childhood in the sense that my dad is an engineer and he was always bringing science home. So he even built his own laboratory um, on our property when I was a kid. And so I remember having this building that my father built outside of our home that was just full of, you know, lab equipment. And I, of course, didn't even understand what most of it was for. But I remember him, you know, being in there with me and showing me how to electroplate one metal onto a different metal, things like that. And um, so I grew up really uh, in a good position. I guess it's not surprising in a sense that I ended up going to college and studying biology and um, being attracted to science. Um, and I've really never given up that kind of uh, curiosity that I had as a, as a little kid. Um, one story that I tell in the introduction of my book is about growing up. I was in um, Kansas City, Missouri uh, as a small child. And we had um, this funny thing that happened where a dentist's office closed down near our house and they came and they dumped everything from their office at the end of our driveway. It was really strange, just we get home and we lived out in the country and um, all of a sudden there was just this pile of everything from this dentist's office um, on our property. And I remember going through and looking at all of the x-rays of people's teeth and 
picking out all of the plaster molds of people's teeth. And I really liked all the ones that were really crooked. (laughs) And I was just really fascinated by that. And I think that I've kind of kept that sense of curiosity, uh, you know, ever since. Um, I had no problem with it being kind of like weird or gross. (laughs) And I think that that tells you something about maybe the kind of kid I was. I had that curiosity. I think most kids do. And I think, um, you know, hopefully we we never grow out of that sense of curiosity and wonder. Um, so I'd like to think that that um, that I have kept that sense of curiosity ever since then. I grew up moving around quite a bit because of my father's uh, jobs in engineering, and so I've lived um, in various parts of the United States, um, mostly in the South. And um, so I've had a really I had a really fun and interesting upbringing, seeing different parts of the country. And I think that influenced me as well. So, um, and then I went to college. Like I said, I studied biology and ended up falling in love with science writing uh, while I was in graduate school. So I studied uh, biology and environmental science, and I have master's degrees in both of those fields, and then became a science writer. And it was you know, terrifying to kind of switch fields, but I found that I really loved writing about science. I loved learning something new every day. I loved feeding that curiosity and learning about all different areas of science rather than focusing in on one more narrow field. Um, and as you know, you're, you're a graduate student yourself, right? So I, um, so I know you're familiar with this, you know, as when you become a scientist, you have to really focus on very particular areas and even particular questions that you're, you're asking, and those will often follow you throughout your career. And, um, and that's wonderful. And I love scientists who are able to have that focus. Um, but for me, I have found that I really love the breadth of writing about all kinds of science. And I really like, um, I really have a hard time focusing on one question for my <laughs> for my entire career. I have so many questions that I want to follow. So science writing has really allowed me to do that. So uh, you masterfully really share and engage your audience. So do you think you always had that knack for it or did you learn? I think that I was, you know, I was always very interested in writing and, um, and telling stories and I had, I think I had a creative side for explaining things. I always liked writing. Um, In fact, even in graduate school, I actually enjoyed writing my scientific papers (laughs) as much as doing the lab work. Um, But it's definitely a skill that you have to learn. I had a lot of enthusiasm going in. uh, And what I think a lot of people in science have a hard time appreciating is how difficult it is to really switch gears and explain things to the public, not just in a way that is uh, clear and accurate, but also in a way that people want to read it, (laughs) that it's interesting, that it's entertaining, and that you're really telling a story. You have to put people into the story. It can't just be about science um, or you know, sometimes people won't really relate to it if you're just telling them facts like it's out of a textbook. They really want to read stories about the people behind the science as well. So learning to do all of that um, was really a challenge, of course. I got my start by pretty much jumping in and starting to pitch stories to the local newspaper while I was in graduate school in Boulder, Colorado. And I just pitched ideas until finally they took one. (laughs) And then they gave me an internship there. And learning how to write at a daily newspaper, I think, was really crucial for me. I think it's a really fantastic experience. I wish more scientists actually could have that experience of having to quickly learn about something new in science and write an interesting, compelling story for the general public to read about it because I would maybe get an assignment at nine o'clock in the morning of something to write about. And I would have to turn in my first draft of the story after lunch. (laughs) So 
it was, you know, very quick process of maybe reading a scientific paper, uh, finding someone to interview, calling scientists and basically seeing who I could get on the phone quickly to talk to about this scientific discovery. And then, and then sitting down and trying to write something coherent (laughs) in, you know, an hour or so. So I, I really enjoyed the rush of doing that. I ended up writing for the, the Boulder, Colorado um, newspaper, The Daily Camera, and then I had a fellowship writing for the Philadelphia newspaper, The Philadelphia Inquirer. And I really liked that daily rush of uh, getting a story done. Um, and I learned so much doing that. You know, you, you have to learn really fast. So I, I really enjoyed that. I think it was uh, really just the best learning experience that you could have. So what would be your advice to our early career scientists who perhaps are considering careers in science communication, but are not really sure where and how to start? Yeah, it's, I could ask that question a lot. I, I find that a lot mm-hmm. of scientists, uh, early career scientists especially, are really interested in communicating with the public. They often aren't sure what to do with it. Do I need to go to journalism school? Do I need to get an English degree? I mean, I didn't know these things getting started either. Today, there are actually a number of science writing uh, programs that you can go to at universities. And those are one way to get a good start, um, and at least to find information about, about, um, you know, what the options are in a career in science communication, because there are many, you know, there's journalism um, and science writing, like what I do, but then there's also a a wide variety of other career paths. There are a lot of really talented writers and communicators who work for universities as public information officers and who work for big laboratories. Um, there's just a lot of different things that you can do to get involved. And even if you want your main career to be as a scientist, there are still ways that you can improve your communication to the public and get involved in other kinds of writing for the public, whether it's writing books, writing a, a column for your local newspaper, um, whatever it is, there are a lot of ways that you can, that you can write for the public uh, as, as a scientist as well. Mm-hmm. That's excellent advice. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, let's jump to discussion about your book, which is The Gory Details. So Great. am I correct thinking that um, you also had a blog on National Geographic under the same name? Correct, yes. And I started the blog actually back when I worked at Science News Magazine and called it Gory Details. <laughs> and then when I went to go work for National Geographic, I took the blog with me and did it there for a while as well. Um, and I really, it was, you know, just such a great opportunity for me to start exploring some of the subjects that I was interested in. There's really was no better way than a blog where it's almost like that since I had when I worked for daily newspapers, where you can um, find out about something and then write about it you know, pretty quickly and get it out there and get a lot of uh, feedback from, from readers as well. So I really enjoyed blogging. And uh, over time, I ended up amassing you know, all of these stories that I had written. And so it was really wonderful when I started talking to National Geographic about the idea of turning this into a book. So I already had a lot of material, but course we wanted to have a lot of new stuff too so uh, once i was able once we decided that we would turn it into a book i did a lot more reporting and got to do some travel and come up with a bunch of new stories to add in as well uh, as expanding uh and adding to and updating the the stories that i had written before yeah and your blog uh, also has uh, some really vital references something that's it's absolutely you know necessary to know like uh Human, human nutritional profile or whether your dog would eat you if you died. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely something which is really important for everybody to know. Okay. <laughs> well, it's certainly something that people um, are more curious about than I would have thought. <laughs> when I, that 
particular story, Would Your Dog Eat You If You Died? That was one that in particular, I was nervous about writing um, for National Geographic. I thought, maybe this is just going too far. Maybe this is just too gross. Does anyone else really wonder about this? But, you know, a friend of mine had asked me about it. She uh, lives, she lives by herself and has pets. And she said, you know, I heard that, that this can happen, that, you know, someone's, someone's dog or cat might eat them when, after they die, if they're, you know, if their body is in the house. And, uh, is that something, you know, that I should really worry about? And I could tell she was actually, you know, kind of freaked out by this idea. And when I started looking into it, I realized actually a lot of people have this question <laughs> because there are these stories of it happening. And uh, so even though I was nervous about writing about it, that story is probably the most read story I've ever written. I <laughs> was really surprised at how popular it was. I mean, I, I think, you know, more than a million people have read that story based on you know, the numbers that I saw some time back. And um, so that really surprised me. It told me that, yes, actually, people are interested, even when it's something as absolute, absolutely horrifying as the idea of your dog eating you. Oh, yes. After this story, I'm living in existential dread of my guinea pigs chomping on my big toe. <laughs> well, I, you know, you're not safe with guinea pigs, as I talk about in the story. So, so you know, it, it could happen. But, um, you know, the best, the best thing you can do is make sure that, uh, you know, there's someone to find you should the, the need arise. <laughs> Excellent practical advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so why are people so interested in these sorts of taboo topics? You know, I think that when it comes to these kinds of gross or creepy or scary topics, I think that we actually are all interested in these kinds of things. We're often just too embarrassed to talk about them. I think we all know that kids like gross stuff and we're fine with that. But then we act like we're supposed to lose interest in anything gross or creepy or weird when we grow up. But I don't think that we ever actually lose that curiosity. So I'm just trying to give people permission to think about it and even to laugh about it. You know, all of these topics like sex, death, our bodies, our mental health, these are actually really important things that we need to talk about. So I hope that I can make it a little bit easier to talk about them, even though they're uncomfortable, by showing with science how amazing and actually interesting these topics are. And sometimes they're even pretty funny. Hmm. So why do you think some of the science topics can be taboo and other, other topics are not? Is there any specific criteria to it? Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of it comes back to our sense of disgust. I think there's, you know, one, one of the things that I hope people walk away from this book with is, you know, this greater sense that, a lot of these things are tied together. Disgust, taboos, stigma. You know, we are very, we've become very um, uptight in some ways <laughs> about these topics, uh, especially when it relates to our body and things that we think are gross or disgusting. They become taboo. Um I think that a lot of it does come back to our sense of disgust. You know, for example, the types of things that are often considered taboo, uh, you've got things like, you know, death and killing, sex and reproduction, anything having to do with the dead, um, and often a lot of taboos around uh, food. Um for example, <laughs> you've also got cannibalism that is a taboo that kind of combines uh, death and food. <laughs> so, and then our bodies, cleanliness, purity, um, and, uh, you know, a lot of taboos around our bodies. A lot of these overlap a lot with the th same things that we find disgusting. So disgust is this universal human emotion um, where we feel repulsed by certain things Often those are things that can hurt us, uh, that can make us sick. 
So disgust tends to revolve around, um, you know, many of those same kinds of things, death, illness, disease, um, our, our bodies, our bodily fluids, which could carry disease. So I think there's a, there's a good reason in many cases why we're disgusted by certain things, why we end up making things taboo that have to do with those subjects. Um, you know, you don't want to encourage people to touch a dead body because a dead body is covered with uh, bacteria that could make you sick. You know, something that's decomposing could could make you sick. So it makes good sense in many cases for us to have, you know, developed these feeling, these negative feelings about certain topics like death and sex and so forth, our bodies. but then we sometimes maybe have taken it to the next level. We start to uh, make it more of a a moral issue. When it's taboo, there's kind of this moral element to it that you shouldn't do that. It's bad. And once we start calling these things bad, um, then you've got the opportunity to sometimes, you know, elaborate on that and take it to the point where we are, where we, you know, where we are now. So, for example, it makes good sense to um, avoid other people's waste products, body fluids, things like that, because they might carry disease. But then we, you know, in Western society have also made even the process, the menstrual cycle and menstruation has a lot of taboo and a lot of stigma around it. But it's just a it's a natural it's a natural part of our lives, of women's lives, of our you know reproductive lives. It's really not something that we should be ashamed or embarrassed about. But because we carry a lot of baggage with all of this disgust and taboos around things, we end up making some things taboo or thinking that they're disgusting. Um, and that may actually be hurting us in some ways. You know, maybe some things don't need to be so stigmatized. <laughs> and I think that some of the things that I talk about in the book, like, you know, menstruation is a good example of it, and also mental health, where we've developed so much stigma around it that it really uh, stops people from being able to be as healthy as they could be. Yeah, so you, you perfectly outlined uh, this peculiar emotion of disgust. So we have... For- to basic understanding of it, don't we? The intuitive one, which relates directly to things that can harm us, like bugs, and then the moral disgust, which is uh, culturally mediated. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. We, you know, as humans, I think all animals have uh, some sense of avoidance or some sense of disgust, basically. Um, You know, animals will avoid their own feces or the feces of others, for example. So we, we, we all have that inherent protective mechanism, but humans have taken it to another level. Like you say, we've added, you know, this cultural element on top of it of, um, you know, we've added this cultural element on top of it where we add a moral element. And that's something that, you know, as far as I know, other animals don't have. That's unique to humans where we, we make it, um, you know, we, we add a, this cultural element and in one sense, it's good. I mean, this is how humans developed the concept of manners. It keeps us from being disgusted by one another because we do things like um, cover our mouths when we sneeze uh, and we, you know, try not to do disgusting things in front of one another. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think that makes the world a, a, certainly a more tolerable place for all of us. I I, I can't even imagine if we didn't have a sense of disgust and if we hadn't developed a sense of manners in order to keep us from being grossed out by each other all the time, <laughs> we would be so rude. But uh, even though dis- even though in that sense, disgust is a good thing and um, has kind of made us who we are as humans in a sense, um, or at least certainly helped to shape our, our society, um, there's also... There also can be a downside to it, I think, where we 
some, we make ourselves actually more ashamed and embarrassed of things than we need to be. Choose some of the topics of disgust change over time within cultures. Like uh, you made an example of mental health, but it all can also uh, take the bodily deformities, for example, and stuff like this. And do we need to actively work to change our disgust preferences, if that makes any sense? Or is it naturally evolving? I think we do need to work on it a bit. You know, I think mm. it happens over time. Um, you see a lot of of evolution, I think, in our thinking about things like mental health and our our uh, bodies and our, you know, embarrassing bodily functions <laughs> and things like that. I think we are starting to get over it somewhat. Um, but I, I think in Western society, you know, you know, Europeans, Americans, we're very, we're very prudish in a lot of ways still. And I think that it is something that we need to work a bit to be more open-minded about. So I hope that with writing about these kinds of things that I'm helping people start that conversation. Um, but things, for example, even eating insects, okay, that was something that um, for me was very difficult to, to do, but I tried it. I went to a whole conference, a scientific conference on eating insects. And there are a lot of good reasons, uh, why people probably should be eating more insects around the world. They're, uh, not only, you know, healthy and a good protein source, but they're much better for the environment in terms of the impact of agriculture. And so there are plenty of good reasons to do it. The one big reason that we don't eat more insects is really boils down to disgust. And it is completely, in that case, cultural. There are insects that are eaten around the world by lots of people who don't find it disgusting at all. And Probably most of us have ancestors in our past who ate different kinds of insects, you know, different grasshoppers and crickets and things like that have been um, eaten widely in the Americas. And, um, you know, there are lots of examples, even in European cuisine, of, um, of foods that involve um, different kinds of insects. So it's really something that unless we actually <laughs> try to get over it, we, you know, we're really going to just always be missing out on that potential source of, of protein and, and feeding people who, um, you know, basically feeding people who, who need food, who need healthy food and, um, and reducing our environmental impact. So when I went to the eating insects conference, I committed that I was going to try everything that they put in front of us. And they did have a big buffet dinner with lots of different insect dishes. And I tried a number of things. And, you know, most of it was actually pretty good. I, but it was hard for me personally, I will admit, just growing up as an American woman, <laughs> I never experienced eating any kind of insect. And so that first time of putting a cricket in my mouth. It wasn't that easy. I'll admit that. <laughs> but, um, but most of it really, it really didn't, it, you know, I just kept telling myself lots of people eat these things. It, you know, once, once you, once you kind of get over the fact that it has the wrong number of legs, <laughs> it really, you know, logically, you know, that it's not that different from eating um, any other kind of, of meat. Um, it, it's not really that different from eating a shrimp, for example, How, you know, why is it, why is a shrimp not disgusting, but a big cricket is disgusting. You know, that's something that is really a product of our culture and how we grow up and what we're accustomed to. So do you think you would be more accepting of, uh, uh, for example, insect flour that's been integrated in, uh, in breads and such? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I personally, I have no problem at this point with 
um, you know, eating something like that, especially if it's unrecognizable. I mean, I admit it's harder when you actually see a whole insect um, and you're not used to eating that. It's like eating any other kind of novel food. It can be a bit of a challenge, but especially if it's, you know, in a protein shake or something like that, I would have no problem with that. And I think more people, if they, if they did just give it a try, maybe start small, start with something like a protein smoothie that has some cricket powder in it, um, where you won't even know the difference, you won't taste it. Um, That's a good way of just getting yourself mentally past that barrier of it's an insect. And then maybe work your way up to something you know, a little fried grasshopper or something like that. They're really not that bad. <laughs> um, actually, I thought one of the one of the easier entry points at the conference was they had a lot of people were making little dried seasoned um, mealworms. And yeah, it did have that kind of, you know, a skinny shape. You could tell that it was a mealworm. But by the time you put a bunch of chili pepper and, you know, lemon or garlic or something on it, it just tastes like whatever is on it. And it's crunchy. And it's not that different from eating any other kind of, you know, chips or crisps or whatever. So starting off with something like that, I think, makes it a lot easier. And I think it's, it's nice to feel it, there's a good feeling that comes when you've faced a challenge like that, and you've gotten over it, and you've said, oh, I thought that would be really disgusting, but actually it wasn't that bad. Um, I don't know. I I kind of felt proud of myself for getting through it. (laughs) I think a lot of people would probably feel that way if they gave it a try. Yeah, it's really good points of uh, starting, uh, taking small steps to change your behavior, perhaps, then maybe use some uh, seasonings, (laughs) some chili peppers. Mm-hmm. And then integrate it into your daily life to have it more like like a routine rather than something extraordinary that you have to uh, pull yourself together to do, isn't it? That's right, and I, I think you know it's a it's a nice way. If you, oh no, I'm sorry. Okay, sorry, sorry. I accidentally hit something on my computer. Um, we'll start that over. <laughs> um, yes, I think that it's a it's a great idea to start off with something small and especially if you're interested in being more environmentally friendly then you know incorporating something like you know cricket powder or that kind of flour into your cooking is a nice way to get started excellent okay so can you tell me what what disgust has to do with politics I'm not really sure how to reconcile these two, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would just say that I think that we should be aware of our sense of disgust and how sometimes other people try to manipulate it. And so I think it does have something to do with politics in the sense that throughout history, we have seen uh, politicians and leaders use disgust against groups of people that they want to. Um, attack or disenfranchise. So for example, even Fidel Castro, the the communist leader in Cuba, he would call his opponents worms, gusanos. And, you know, he would invoke these kinds of ideas that they're they're disgusting, they're worms. And, And we've seen other political leaders do things like that. So to to um to vilify other people. We make them disgusting. We say they're, you know, we compare them to animals, um, or, or say that they're going to bring disease into our country. In the case of immigrants, um, and there's been a lot of that. You know, I think in the United States, in particular, we're really grappling with issues around immigration and um, and other people from other parts of the world coming to our country, and sometimes they do get vilified. Um, in ways that use our disgust against them, um, trying to make them seem less than human and or dirty, uh, filthy, threatening in those ways that, that trigger our disgust. So I think it's just something that people could be more aware of and be on the lookout when 
when a politician is describing other people in words that trigger that feeling of disgust, uh, you know, we need to be aware of that and see that we're, we're being manipulated to think of other people in that way. It's an excellent point that disgust is such a strong emotion that it can be sort of weaponized even sometimes. Absolutely. I think that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it, that it can be weaponized against us sometimes. And so we just have to be aware of that and not allow it to happen. So talking about emotions, why do you think the gross, morbid and creepy bring us joy and happiness? (laughs) Well, I think that personally, I take a lot of delight in how crazy our our world, our universe and nature are. I mean, I think there's a lot of of joy to be had um, if we are willing to look at the world around us with new eyes and not be scared or embarrassed about all of the weird and gross things that go on. I mean, nature is is certainly not embarrassed to (laughs) find all kinds of clever solutions to problems, you know. Throughout animal evolution, you just see so many creative solutions to problems. Um, you know, I, I just think about how how delightful it is that something like um, what was the animal that that makes the square poop? Was it wombats? Um, oh, yes, I should have had that example ready, but. Um, you know, I think I find it really delightful that an animal like a wombat can make square poop <laughs> and thinking about how does it do that? Why does it do that? Um, you know, and there's just so many interesting things happening all around us in nature. So I always like to say I love to turn over a log and see what will slither out um, because there are just so many, you know, hidden wonders, I think, around in the world all around us. Um, we're often just a little too afraid to, you know, to take a look. But uh, it also applies not just to the natural world, but to actual human nature. Like looking at all of these museums of oddities, for example, or pictures from the 18th, 19th century. I mean, I love looking through them and they are are not pleasant. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I mean, I think it's really a pretty modern phenomenon how squeamish we are about a lot of things. I mean, when you look at even death, people talked much more openly about death and things that now we would think are really very morbid. Um, you know, even in the, even in the 1800s, like you were saying, people would make, um, you know, elaborate um, pictures out of the hair of loved ones who had died And I've seen in museums, you know, these really beautiful pieces of artwork that were made with Mm. with a dead person's hair. Um, And now that seems kind of strange. I don't I can't imagine anyone that who I know now, um, you know, taking locks of of their loved one's hair after death and making art out of it or things like that. But, you know, I think that that these museums of oddities are filled with these things for a reason because we are actually fascinated by them um, and have always been. I think it's really pretty, a pretty modern phenomena that we're so squeamish about so many things. Okay, so where do you think the line between joyfully creepy and horrifying and scary lies? <laughs> I think that's a great question. And I think it's kind of a moving line. I think it's a little bit different for everyone. I think for some people, for example, you know, they get the most freaked out by any kind of insects and creepy crawlies. For other people, you know, they just absolutely cannot stand to uh, watch any kind of of scary movie where it involves death or killing. Um, other people, while other people love horror movies, you know, I, I think it's it's kind of a moving target, uh, for sure. I personally, I find a lot of uh, joy in creepy things, and um, and even for some things that are a little scary, as long as they don't um, feel like a like a direct threat. You know, it's there's a, a psychologist named Paul Rosen who 
uses the term benign masochism, and that is the feeling of um, of pleasure that we can get from pushing ourselves and witnessing something scary or creepy or gross. Uh, so, for example, a lot of people will line up to smell a really disgusting uh, flower called the corpse flower that smells like something dead and rotten. People want to smell it. You know, why would they do that? Well, it's this little form of benign masochism where your brain knows that you're safe. You're not going to get sick from smelling this, but your body doesn't know that. And so you get this tension and kind of a thrill of um, challenging your body while knowing actually that you're safe. It's a little bit like riding a roller coaster. He compares it to, of, you know, there's that thrill of knowing that you're going to survive riding the roller coaster, but your body doesn't know it. Your body feels like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to die. So it challenges you in that sense of like facing death while also knowing in the back of your mind that you're actually safe. So I think we all have our different lines for when it goes too far. Um, you know, for some people, for example, for some people, things like clowns are extremely creepy. And that's one thing that I, I wrote about in the book. I'm actually kind of curious whether this is an American phenomenon or is this universal? <laughs> Do people in Europe have the same feeling that that clowns are really scary and creepy sometimes? Not so much. Like I haven't actually seen many clowns even when I was young. So so yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a bit bizarre that people are, are a bit afraid, at least to me. Yeah, here in the US we have, you know, all kinds of things about creepy clowns, movies and uh, you know, clowns have become this very scary thing. Whereas, mm. you know, back in the in the 1950s, clowns were very popular children's entertainment. There were TV shows like Bozo the Clown and, you know, the clowns were happy and friendly and and something that kids loved. And now I'd say there are more people in the U.S. who are afraid of clowns <laughs> than who would want to have a clown at their child's birthday party. Um, so it is a lot of... Um, you know, it's definitely part of that cultural background of what you think is gross or not gross or scary or not scary. Um, in the case of creepy clowns, I think, you know, clowns feel creepy to a lot of people because um, what psychologists say is that, that there's this contradiction between the clown that has this big painted on grin um, and yet you don't know what it's going to do. It, you know, they act in very unpredictable, strange ways. Uh, they don't, you know, behave according to normal social behavior. They act very goofy and strange. And so there's that disconnect where you don't know for sure whether something is a threat. And that's what gives you the creepy feeling. So, you know, again, what we think is creepy can vary from person to person based on, you know, what your experiences have been with this. Does it seem like a threat? Does it seem like a safe threat? Or does it seem like a real threat? Interesting. And uh, taking clowns, so they usually have these exaggerated features, don't they? And so uh, they, they can be a bit threatening rather than sort of benign. Okay. Okay. So I remember when I was a kid, for example, that I read a book by Stephen King called It!, and it was about this scary clown that lived in the sewers and that would catch kids and eat them or kill them. And that really changed my perception of clowns. I don't think I had an opinion one way or the other about clowns before that. Um, so it just goes to show that, you know, what we're exposed to culturally can affect what we think is creepy or what we think is disgusting. Um, and I think that, you know, that probably holds true for a lot of other things besides clowns as well. So going back to what you described in, in the beginning, the way that all of this dental equipment was dumped on your driveway. So <laughs> right. do you think um, we can use this sort of gross and weird stuff to, as a gateway to really get people interested in science, for example? Absolutely. I mean, I think that if someone's uh, a teacher, for example, they will find that if they teach a uh, a section using 
CSI, forensic science, all of a sudden kids will be way more interested in chemistry and all kinds of, of science that they maybe didn't think they were interested in before. But it's really about how it's applied. And I think that we can use and we should use the fact that we're interested in um, creepy, gross and strange things. There's nothing particularly wrong with being interested in, you know, bugs and our bodies and bodily fluids and things like that. It's not necessarily something that we need to be so embarrassed about. And so I think absolutely we should be getting people more interested in science using those those subjects. I mean, I think if you ask a lot of people, are you interested in reading a science book? They would say, no, not necessarily. But I tend to find that when I say, oh, I've written a book about gross, creepy, and weird science, and I write all about things like, you know, insects and and uh, eating them, and I write about things like, you know, whether our dogs would eat us when we died, or the mystery of why disembodied feet have been washing ashore in British Columbia. People say, ooh, what's that about? All of a sudden, they're very interested. Um, and it, it really does get them interested in science that if I had just said, you know, it's about Out chemistry. for the gross, and, and stay for the science. <laughs> If I just said it was about entomology and chemistry and you know bacteriology, I think their eyes would glaze over. <laughs> but it's very different to to study, you know, to learn about bacteriology versus learning about the um, the bugs that will you know decompose us when we die. So <laughs> it's I think we should absolutely capitalize on people's curiosity wherever that curiosity lies. Excellent. Well, Erica, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on? Sure. Well, right now I'm working very hard on a big package of uh, stories that will be coming out celebrating the last century of science for Science News Magazine, which is celebrating its 100th year, uh, making it one of the, the longest running science magazines uh, in the world. So I'm very proud and excited to be working on, on um, stories about the last century of science for them. And I'm still hoping to get back to that story that I was working on for National Geographic before the pandemic, um, which is actually about one of my favorite topics, which is menstruation and the menstrual cycle and how science and society are changing their views around menstruation. So I look forward to getting back to thinking all about periods in the near future. Yeah, sounds interesting. Really good, nice <laughs> project. <laughs> yeah. So where can our listeners find more about uh, Gory Details, your book? Sure, they can go to gorydetailsbook.com, which will take them to my website and they can see all about the book and when it's out and where to buy it and more about me and other things I've written. Fantastic. Well, well, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.